All right. In those days, uh, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Uh, Thirteen, if, you, if you're a highlighter or an underliner, you need to highlight or underline apostles, because this is the only place in any of the four Gospels where any Gospel writer writes uh, this word in the Greek as a noun. Everywhere else, it's usually used as a verb to be sent out. Here, Luke is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus is calling a noun an official office of the church. Okay, So what this does, what verse 13 does then with that structure of grammar, is it calls into question anybody who is claiming to be an apostle. Right? Have you ever heard people say, well, I'm apostle so-and-so? Well, Luke 6.13 is going to disagree with that because there's a specific thing you must have to be an apostle. And the specific thing you must have is you must have a earthly calling from Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, those guys have been long gone, right? So anytime you see that. One of my favorite movies is called The Apostle with Robert Duvall. Is anybody here a Robert Duvall fan like me? Dude, I love Robert Duvall. He's one of my all-time favorite actors. But uh, he, wrote, he was in a movie called The Apostle. His character was Sonny. He called himself an apostle. And uh, my favorite scene is when um, they, they said in the movie, he's in his house and he's screaming. And they said, what's going on? Is everything okay? And the person outside said, well, sometimes Apostle Sonny talks to God and sometimes he yells at God. So <laughs> just about prayer there. But anyway. All right, so here's, here's what it says. It goes on, going on, he said, Apostle. So he puts it in a noun form. And then he says who these men are. Verse 14. Simon, who's named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, and James, John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas's chariot, who became a traitor. Amen. Pray God will write this truth on all of our hearts, this inerrant, infallible word, that we would continue to be more faithful to Him. Okay, let's look at this. First thing. If you only get one thing out of the sermon today, and I hope you get more than that, but if you just walk away with one thing, I want you to walk away with this. Jesus prayed, first and foremost, right? Jesus prayed, therefore I need to pray. As I said earlier, as I was introducing this, I struggled with prayer because I thought, well, if God knows, I don't need to tell him. That was sort of my mentality. That's a wrong, immature mentality because, you know, First of all, that view of prayer is not correct. Prayer is not just primarily about me asking things from God. So many times we think prayer is just about a grocery shopping list. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you better. I've got a dear friend of mine. He's been friends with me since the 80s. Like we went to school together when we were little. And the only time, usually, the only time he calls me when he has an issue, he needs resolved. He's got either he needs money or he needs help working through a situation. And that's about the only time I hear from him. There are other friends I have that I've been friends with a long time like that. And they'll call and say, hey man, just wanted to call and check in and see how you're doing. Just want to let you know, appreciate you and your ministry. Uh, listen to you occasionally. And I, I do have something to ask, but you know, if it doesn't work for you for whatever reason, then don't worry about it. You know, just very, very different type conversations. Now, in both scenarios, I love them both, but here's what I've Here's what I've kind of surmised. Sometimes our prayer lives have kind of dwindled like that first friend, haven't they? 
where we have just come to God. And I think Jesus may be, if I would imagine, that Christ may feel wearied with just continual shopping lists. Now, I'm not saying you don't ask God for things, but our prayer life should be not just that. A quick acrostic, if you're a note taker, on how to structure prayer that I think is beneficial. And I was reminded of this by somebody in the last service. And I was like, I should have included that. So you always get the second better one, right, when I come in here is acts. So if you write out the word acts, A-C-T-S, adoration, we're just adoring who God is, confession, we're confessing sins, T is for thanksgiving, and an S is supplication, that's where you ask for stuff. So acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Uh, Jonathan and I are working through a book right now together, and we are on a section right now about adoration, right? We just read a chapter this week on adoration, and we're discussing that and thinking through that. I wonder, I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to think about your prayer time, your prayer life with God. When was the last time you started a prayer with God, speaking to the Lord, and from the first, dear Heavenly Father, or Lord God Almighty, whatever triumphant, large entry, right? I'm a big fan of using the front end of a prayer to magnify how big God is. And then from that point until amen, the whole thing in between was just adoration. You didn't ask for anything. You didn't, you know, make a make a list of issues you're dealing with. It's just God, I know you're the God that owns cattle on a thousand hills. God, you are the great I am, the Alpha, the Omega. God, you're mighty to save. You know, you just got just just a prayer. A pure adoration. You know that's allowed, right? You can just pray prayers of just pure adoration. You can pray prayers of confession. You're just confessing your sin, right? You can pray prayers of just thanksgiving. And each one of those, you don't have to have the other parts. I think a good balanced prayer is probably going to have sections of all of that. But it's a question we need to ask when we're thinking through prayer, right? And when you see this section here, when you see Jesus retreating to the mountain, right? Remember, where was it that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments? Where was it that Moses saw the backside of God? It was on what? The mountaintop, wasn't it? It's a place of special special spiritual activity. Jesus here withdraws there. He's going to be selecting and making an important thing. And, And, you know, some of the reasons we don't pray, I don't know if you've ever asked, why don't we pray more? Some of us are tempted to say because of all the activity we have. The calendar at my house is a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, it's, it's nice that we can organize and things like that, but sometimes it feels like a false god, you know what I mean? Because it's just so much running and going and sacrificing for that thing. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of people who want demands of our time and our life, right? Let me ask you this. We've already seen in the Gospels here, Jesus has healed. He has performed miracles. People are wanting his attention everywhere he goes. Has there ever been another human being in the history of mankind who have, has had more people to make more demands on their schedule? I think the answer is no. Jesus had a very active schedule and calendar. People would fill it up. And yet in the midst of the activity, so here, here's the reality of it. The greater the activity around me, the more I need to pray. The greater the activity around me, the more I need to pray. And why is he doing this? Why is he pulling away like this? He is going to be in sync with his father, right? I mean, if Jesus here is modeling something for us, 
know, he has a, a deep inter-Trinitarian relationship with God that nobody in this room knows. Like, we don't know the depths of what that Trinitarian relationship is like. He has a connection with God the Father, and still, despite that, I know, when we don't understand those intricacies, he withdraws and prays. How much more should we? How much more? We need prayer to make right decisions. I'm sure they get an amen. I'll say it again. We need prayer to make right decisions. It's just delayed. It's delayed this morning. <clears throat> Jesus is going to be selecting here men who will be foundational for the church. <clears throat> and what is he calling them to here, right? Enough. How many men are listed here? There's what? Twelve, right? I'll do the math real quick for you. There's twelve. How many tribes of Israel in the Old Testament are there? Twelve. This is the new tribes he's selecting, the leaders of the new tribes. This is the, listen, Revelation 21, 14. You go home today. I don't have time to go through it today. Wish I had time to just preach to you. Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 14 talks about the new Jerusalem, the new city, and the names of the apostles who were selected, handpicked by Jesus, being inscribed there, it's important, right? And what is it here that he needs? He needs to see truth clearly and objectively in order to make a good decision, right? And this is what we all need when we're making decisions. We need to see truth clearly and objectively. The temptation I think we always have is to just assume that we are right and we see and understand things clearly. Some have reacted almost too far to that, and they have made truth relative. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody really believes in relative truth at the end of the day. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to make this point myself. When I was at ETSU in my philosophy class, when the teacher stood up and said, all truth is relative, I said, I raised my hand and said, you just made an objective statement about truth, right? You can't make that statement without it being objective. Furthermore, I'm sure, I am sure, I will guarantee you this. If you look at that professor's portfolio, I bet he doesn't invest with investors who think financial truth is relative and whatever I think it is. I bet he's got somebody who's studied the market, who understands the trends and understand how S&P markets work and want that money to return back to him. That there are certain standards he's looking for in that, in that investor. How about in his health, right? I just think medical field's all relative. You want somebody like that doing your heart operation? Who thinks that it's all relative, which line you ought to cut, which vein should be cut, and how it should be cut? Not me. <laughs> There's an objective standard for how the human body is put together, and I want my surgeon to be uh, trained and approved and certified and all those things, right? And even then, he, may, he or she may make a mistake, right? There's no objectivity in there. There's no objectivity here in faith either. You see, Jesus is the truth, isn't he? Did he not say that? I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. Man, if I hear somebody say again, I just got to speak my truth, I'm going to scream. You don't get to speak your truth. Truth just is. It's not yours. You don't get like your own custom truth. It just is, right? There's only one, namely here, Christ. Another thing we see here, Jesus picking men who are going to be the foundation of the church. There's a lot of possibilities. There's a great number of possibilities. 
you know, Jesus is not having to make a choice between should I pick the satanic worshipers or should I pick the disciples who've been following me, right? That's not the choice. The choice here is he has all these people who've been following him in his ministry, who have been, many of which he's spoken to and has called them to follow him in discipleship. But he's got to pick 12 here. Really 11 who will turn out and produce fruit. But 12. He's got to pick 12 and there's a lot of good possibilities, but he has to pick the best. This is the normal state of Christian faith, right? We're constantly making decisions between what is good and what is best, particularly when all things are equal. And whenever we have the greater the, greater the possibilities, the more I need to pray, right? Because you think about what Jesus is calling these, these men to do. Well, first of all, he's calling them to follow him. Right? Didn't Jesus call all of us to follow him? I can remember when the Lord moved in my young heart at age 12 at a vacation Bible school, and I followed him there. And then he affirmed that calling again in high school. Then later in college when I felt affirmed to go on and, and, and felt a call and a desire burning to preach the gospel, to preach the word of God, a call to go. He's calling them to learn, right? Jesus is looking for disciples who are teachable people who will come under the truth and learn from it. He's looking for them to lead. These are going to be the people who will lead the church. He needs them to follow him. He needs them to learn. And he needs them to lead. But there's one more thing he needs them to do. One more thing that is here. He needs them to die, doesn't he? He's calling them to follow learn, to lead, and to die. When you look at this list of these men, all of them, we're going to take Judas as carried out since he committed suicide. He never really was. He was a traitor, says here in the text. The other 11, how many of them made it to old age? Does anybody know? Just one. Right? Listen, Peter, church tradition tells us, was crucified upside down. James is mentioned as almost one line in Acts that he was killed, he was martyred for the faith. Thomas, poor Thomas, the man asked one question. He gets branded the rest of his life, right? He just asked one question. Did you know you know what church tradition records happened to Thomas? He lived his whole life on mission for Christ. Church tradition says he ended up in India and he died there trying to lead people to Christ. There's actually a town there named after him. But what's he remembered for, right? One question. Just goes to show you, you better think before you ask that question in a business meeting. You'll be branded the rest of the time you're here, right? Haunt you forever. What do we learn here, right? Well, call of the gospel is not, therefore take your pillow and follow me. Jesus didn't say that, right? What did he say? Take, your, take up your cross, right? Follow me. Don't take up your comforter and your pillow. Take up your cross and follow me. Another thing we see here then, the, the greater the consequences, the more I need to pray, right? Life is on the line. That's great consequences more we need to pray. Another thing we see here in this passage 
these guys are, are going to meet challenges, aren't they? They're going to be they're going to be called to be the foundation of the church for the world to see. Uh, these are the guys that that according to Hebrews eleven, right? That's the chapter of faith. Hebrews eleven eight. Abraham longed to see those, right? He would have longed to see these apostles and see them there, right? It's going to be a challenging road for them. You know, the greater, not only the consequences, the greater the challenge, the more I need to pray. This is just the reality of our situation. Our culture is becoming more and more acidic to Christianity. It is. I have, I have watched it over the last 20 years. Slowly, things that we preach and teach that have been handed down from the apostles are being labeled as toxic in the culture. We're, we are being ostracized and pushed out of circles. And it may get a lot worse to where people are going to be in prison and even killed. I don't know. But I'm seeing this trend. We have a lot of challenges now. You know, what are we to do? We can try to handle those challenges in our own strength and in our own ability, or we can do what Oswald Chambers once said. I like what Oswald, you ever, everybody ever heard of him? Oswald Chambers wrote a really good devotional years ago. He said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abundance uh, or the abandonment of reliance on them. You know, when we, when we look at this list of men, one thing that sticks out to me is this is not this is kind of a this is kind of a ragtag team of unknowns to be quite honest I'm not trying to be mean or nothing but you know let's let's look down the list here right let's see what we can learn here from this and this is important because have you ever seen somebody and they're really like intelligent they're an excellent speaker they are they have charisma they can just draw people in and you think, man, that person would just, they would just come to Christ. Imagine the impact that that would have. This principle that I just stated by Oswald Chambers is, that's really poor thinking on the part of Christians. Because those kind of leaders that are good speakers, that are, uh, have charisma and do all those things, they're either going to have to abandon those or God's going to use somebody else to accomplish his work, right? Let's look at some of these, right? Simon, we know a little about Peter there. You know, he's, what's his personality type, right? Quick to draw a sword, quick to jump the gun. Andrew, his brother, not as much known about him. James and John, right? Sons of, sons of thunder there, who their mom, got their mom to ask if they could sit by Jesus, because that's real thunderous, right? Get your mom to ask. Um, Jesus, excuse me, can my boy sit next to you, right? Okay, whatever. Philip, Bartholomew. We know a little about Philip. We know next to nothing about Bartholomew. Nothing. He's like an almost unknown, unnamed guy. In verse 15, Matthew. Remember Matthew, right? What was his occupation? He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome, right? Skimmed a little off the top. Had a little money in his pocket from that, right? Being called by Jesus. Thomas shared with you what we probably know about him. James, the son of Alphaeus. And then look here. Simeon, who was called... The zealot. Zealot for what? Do him, the sons of thunder, those guys wanted the Roman government overthrown. They wanted them kicked out of Israel. They wanted them out. Jesus here is calling zealots, political zealots, alongside of 
a tax man to be discipled. Do you see that little tension there? These are people that we would probably label as natural enemies in the culture, right? Tax collectors and zealots against the nation, uh, the occupying forces there, they're probably not going to be grabbing burgers together or, you know, hummus or whatever it was they had back then together, right? Not going to go out and do that together. But what do we learn here? We learn something that is critically important. And the thing that's critically important here is that the church is structured in such a way that those who the world would pit against and make natural enemies are united as one in Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Tax collectors and zealots are one in Christ. Men and women, remember that there's been feminists have beat their chest for years, right? Men have, unrepentant, chauvinistic men have beat their chest for years, making a divide on the sexes. In one, we're all beggars at the same table in Christ, aren't we, men and women? You know, everybody complains about cancel culture. I really wish they would cancel racism. Can't we just be one race, the human race? Isn't that what we all are, born from Adam and Eve? Right? Let's stop pitting skin colors against each other. We're not different races. We're one race. We just got different pigments in our body. That shouldn't divide us. That's silly, isn't it? Isn't that silly? One in Christ, but the world would have us pitted against one another. Children against, you know, young against old. All these different people should be able to exist in Christ. You know, you naked rangers should be able to sit down and worship together with Hampton Bulldogs, right? I mean, I thought that did something. I didn't go hard enough, right? We all should be able to sit down with uh, with Cyclones. Oh, I thought that'd make a groan. Man, maybe the rivalries aren't as bad as I thought they were. Was it Cloudland? Which one was it? Was it Cloudland? Was that the one? Anyway, I don't know how Fridays go, but I know how Sunday should go, Right? Sunday should be everybody at the table together praising, singing God, and should be like that on Friday too. A friendly little match should not deter who we are in Jesus, right? So, when we think through this, another thing that we're we're pulling out here, right? I oftentimes, and I'm, I'm going to harp on this a little bit, not not long, but a little bit. A lot of times I hear praying, particularly in our area. I didn't hear this much praying this way in the Midwest when I was there, but it's, it's very progressive and pervasive in the, in the Bible Belt and in the Appalachia. I hear people praying for the will of God, that God would reveal His will. Often I hear that. Like, all the time I hear it. And while I don't think it's wrong to pray for God to reveal His will when all things are equal, let me make a quick couple points here on God's will. First of all, Massive portions of God's will has been revealed in Scripture. Massive portions, right? What's the mission of the church? Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Well, the mission of the church is simple. We right here in East, uh, East Elizabethan, our call is to make disciples right here in East Elizabethan. And we're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, according to Acts 1.8. We don't have to argue about that. God's will is plainly revealed in black and white. What are we supposed to do when we come together? How are we supposed to behave? What are the house rules for the church? What's God's will for that? The great commandments. <laughs> Therefore, love one another as Christ has loved you, right? But what about marriages? How should I treat my spouse? Ephesians addresses that. It's plainly revealed, right? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. There's no 
There's no need to pray about that. It's clearly revealed. Now, if you need help doing those things, that's a different matter. But if you need to know what they are, read your Bible. <laughs> right? There's a lot that's plainly revealed there. You know what I think a bigger issue is? I don't, <laughs> I don't know that we always need to focus on praying to know God's will. As if it's this big mysterious thing that no one can cipher out. When God has given it to us in black and white, so many things that are clear, enough to keep you busy for five lifetimes. No, I don't pray. I, I don't pray as much to know God's will. I get a lot of that when I read scripture. I, pr- I think we need to pray more that we would be doers of God's will. Right? So when we walk away today, I hope that we are seeing clearly the need to pray as Jesus did. I hope that we see clearly and objectively the truth that he is, that we will see the greater the possibilities and consequences and challenges, the more we need to pray, and that finally we would pray, not that God would reveal some weird, mysterious will that we can never find and we end up chasing forever, but that we would not just seek that will, that we would do his will, right? Isn't that what James told us? those who've read the word, they walk away and they forget their own image, like a man who, who walks away and sees his image in a mirror, walks away and forget immediately what it looks like. Sometimes I feel like those prayers are like, if James were standing next to you, you could almost see him rolling his eyes. Don't just pray for this mysterious will to be revealed. Be doers of what's been given to you, right? Let's pray. Father, we adore you. We love you. We are in awe of what you have given us here. You have given us the cross. You have given us salvation. You have given us a way to communicate with you anytime we want it. God, you have given us yourself. Lord, we're not worthy of this. We're not worthy of gifts like this. It, It is amazing how gracious and merciful you are. Lord, we're a people who live on mercy. We live on mercy that flows from you through the cross. We live on mercy that flows from you through the word. We live on mercy that flows from you through others. Help us to be those people of mercy, God. Help us not to just sit around trying to guess what your will for our lives are. But help us to be doers, as James has called us to. Be doers of what you clearly revealed, Lord. Give us the faith, the the strength, and the knowledge, the wisdom to do your will. Help us to do your will when we don't feel like it. Help us to do your will when we're aggravated. Lord, help us to do your will at all times to all people. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You don't know Christ. I've primarily been speaking to believers, but if you're here, you don't know Jesus. I want to say something just in this closing thought, and I'm going to be done. Just like Jesus called these men specifically, Don't you know today that you're on the heart of Christ? That Jesus, as he was praying for these specific men, he prays and thinks of you. And he's calling today for you. The question is, what's your response? Let's sing.